0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless your name. We thank you for revealing yourself again through your Son, Jesus Christ, who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, and no one can come to you but by him. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to come to you only by him, only by what he has accomplished and what he accomplished on behalf of his people. We thank you, Lord, for your testimony over and over, that you are holy and righteous, your testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, your testimony of the Holy Spirit also. We thank you that he continues to bear that Christ, bear the testimony that Christ is the Son of God and that he accomplished our salvation. And this sometimes is hard for us to understand. And Lord, may you always remind us of these wonderful things. We pray now for your blessing. May you help us to understand the scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John twelve twenty-seven and twenty-eight. John twelve twenty-seven and twenty-eight. The Lord says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it, and will glorify it again. The word of the Lord. Our one title is, For This Purpose I Came. For This Purpose I Came, or Father Glorify Your Name. Or you can combine both of them and say, For This Purpose I Came, Father, to glorify Your Name. It is very helpful when Jesus actually tells us for what purpose He came. <laughs> not to name and claim it, but to glorify the name of His Father and to glorify Himself. And we are going to go straight into verse 27. There's much to talk about, and I was debating on whether to do part 1, 2, and 3 because it's just such a needful understanding for the church to understand who Jesus is And for what reason did he come? And when you have a title like this, for this purpose I came, you're actually preaching the whole Bible. You have to preach the whole Bible. You have to go beyond where we are right now to really understand what Jesus is saying. We'll see what other understanding the Lord will give me beyond this, but we have a lot of understanding. We are going to go to some places. We have a lot of scripture to try and understand what jesus is teaching but we're going to go straight to verse 27 of john 12 now my soul has become troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour but for this purpose i came to this hour and you can say for this purpose i came to the world the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified the glorification of christ is talked about by him in John 11. The death of Lazarus was to the glory of the Father and of the Son. And so he continues with that theme of being glorified. And the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Not the Son of God, but the Son of Man, the Messiah. Because when Jesus uses the term Son of Man, he is using that as a messianic title. He wants you to know that he is about to accomplish some work of salvation. The hour is not about some 60 minutes on CBS, (laughs) but the appointment that Jesus had with the cross. And Jesus had been hinting about this hour throughout his ministry, saying it is not yet, it is not yet, and that is why no man could lay their hands on him. But now it is here, it has arrived, and so he is troubled, he is in great distress. Jesus in this way was not trying to disobey God as I have had some people say that well Jesus was beginning to have second thoughts about going on the cross. Or even when he prayed and said in Mark fourteen thirty six, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus was not saying, I'm having second thoughts. I'm going to just pick up my bags and go back to heaven, which he could have done without sinning. But what Jesus was doing with that was he was speaking to the reality of the wrath that was about to come on him. The cross was not a pretend cross. It was not a dog and pony saw. It was real. And so Jesus was afraid. He was afraid. His humanity, because Jesus is God and man, his humanity had to be apprehensive of what was about to happen to him. Take this cup away from me was to show us the reality of the judgment to come. But then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And by saying, not my will, but your will be done, Jesus was saying, this was the only way that salvation could come. There's no other way that salvation could come to man other than through the cross. And remember Jesus said, his food was to do the will of the Father. And so he did the will of the Father perfectly and completely. Otherwise, the Father would not have resurrected him from the dead. So the Son of God expresses fear of the judgment to come, and yet sinners are oblivious to this reality of the wrath of God to come. They kick back and relax with bags of chips and Doritos and pretzels with a remote in hand and worrying about nothing. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And to this Jesus will say, For as in the days before the flood They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So people are just oblivious and they are failing. They are not going into the ark. Going into the ark is going into Jesus. They are not going into the ark. So if you don't go into the ark with Noah, guess what? The flood is coming regardless. But if the hour of his glorification has come, it means his appointed time has come. Jesus is moving on God's schedule just as everything in all creation moves in its appointed time. When Lazarus died, Jesus did not say, "Okay boys, can you catch an Uber taxi so that we can get to Mary and Mother's house. No. He waited four more days. Why? Because he was moving on schedule. With the Samaritan woman, he had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because he had an appointment with the woman. He had an appointment with Zacchaeus. He had an appointment with the blind beggar. He always has an appointment with everyone. He never does anything without an appointment. The times and seasons of life are appointed by him. The seasons and times of poverty, of riches, of sickness, of death, of everything is appointed by him. Trouble comes by his appointment because of him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. So the feasts in the Old Testament were the appointed times. Feast means appointed time. They were the set times. That God gave to the children of Israel to speak to the reality of the coming of Christ. The reality of Christ and the gospel. And so in Leviticus 23, all this is connected with what Jesus is going to say. It's going to be a lot of background and working. And then we'll get to the point. Leviticus 23 verse 4 to 8. Moses writes and says, These are the appointed times of the Lord holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the lord's passover and that 14th day the first month is the month of nisan or abib that is the month that has the passover verse 6 then on the 15th day of the same month there is the feast of unleavened bread to the lord for seven days You shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation, which means a Sabbath. You shall not do any laborious work. And this holy convocation is what John calls the high day in John 19. It's very important when we begin to seek understanding as to when Jesus actually died. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. This is the first day of the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread was the feast that began the next day after the Passover. So when Jesus died, he died on the Passover as the Passover lamb. And the very next day was a Sabbath. It was a Sabbath. Why? Because once a year, you have the Passover. And the Passover is always followed by a Sabbath. Outside the regular seventh day Sabbath. Okay. So John is the one who gives us this understanding. And that tells us when you do the work, you realize that Jesus did not die on Friday. He did not die on Friday. A lot of people think once they see Sabbath, automatically it has to be Saturday. No, it's not. So these appointed times were of the Lord and were to be proclaimed at the times appointed for them. Listen to verse 5 again of Leviticus 23. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, a twilight is the Lord's Sabbath. It's twilight. It's giving you the time at which Christ has to die. That is the time that Jesus died. The twilight. And that is a very precise and clear instruction. And Jesus Christ was our Passover. He was the Passover lamb. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says this. Clean out 1 Corinthians 5, 7 Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lamb just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. The Corinthians are going crazy. The Corinthian church is going crazy. They have serious issues in that church. And Apostle Paul comes and draws understanding for them from the feasts. He preaches the gospel to them from the feast and says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lamb. What is that saying? Exodus 12, Exodus chapter 12. We have to go there because we have a number of verses to read. Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 to 20. Exodus 12, 14 to 20 says, Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance or statute. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses for whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. So you see, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you had the Sabbath that started the day of unleavened bread. And then you had the Sabbath that closed the unleavened bread. So essentially you have, if we assume that the Passover feast was on Wednesday, Thursday is is a Sabbath day. Saturday is a Sabbath day. And then the following week, you're going to have another Sabbath day. So you're going to have two weeks that have two Sabbaths. (laughs) We shall talk about that at length sometime because they have theological significance. So verse 17 of Leviticus 12, you shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day, I brought your horse out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall Observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. What is being talked about? Leaven is yeast. And yeast is put in baking powder to make the dough rise as it is being baked. And when you are using yeast, see that you use very little. A little yeast is added in the baking process. You don't put a whole cup of yeast. So what does the yeast do? Yeast is an enzyme. It's a biological enzyme that thrives on simple sugars that are found in the dough, in the baking flour. And in the process of respiration, in the process of breaking down the sugars, that's what respiration is. They produce carbon dioxide and alcohol. And since baking is done at high temperature... The carbon dioxide is a gas, and the ethanol also is a gas at this point. When they escape from the dough, that's what causes the dough to rise and become a loaf of bread, as you know it. But the idea of yeast in gospel teaching is that of influence. That's the point. It's influence. A little bit of yeast produces such a huge influence on a whole lump of dough. Yeast represents influence. It represents sin. And that is why when the ordinance or feast of unleavened bread was instituted, the Lord instructed this. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And that has significance in the gospel because the bread without yeast was the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the body that was to be eaten without the influence of sin. So the feast of unleavened bread, as we read, began the next day after the feast of the Passover. So essentially the two feasts were inseparable. And so God commanded the children of Israel That for seven days they were not to eat bread with yeast. There was not to be in the body of Christ any amount of sin, no matter how small. That was the point. No amount of sin in the body of Christ because it is the body of Christ that we eat by faith. His body had to be offered perfect and spotless and that is why imputation was the only way by which Christ could be made sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Once he introduced a little bit of sin, you're already eating bread with yeast. See? God has been teaching this for a long time. So before the beginning of unleavened bread, Israel had to clean out all their yeast from their houses, or else they were cut off. Why cut off? Because they would have been messing up the perfect and sinless body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the same reason why Moses got in trouble for striking the rock twice. Moses was messing up the typology. Jesus could not be struck more than once for salvation. Only had to be struck once. And God says, for that reason, Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land. But with that, God was teaching that the law could not take God's people into the promised land. So Moses could not even go into the promised land with his own law. Is Joshua, a type of Christ, who had to take God's people into the promised land. And with that understanding, Apostle Paul comes and says to the Corinthian church that I was going crazy. Going back to, to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 4-7, right? 5-7? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 5-7. Apostle Paul says, clean out the old leaven, get it out of your house so that you may be a new lamb just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. The old leaven is sin. Clean out the divisions, the mishandling of communion, the foolishness that is happening with speaking in tongues. (laughs) Clean out all that foolishness that you may be a new lamb. Paul is very careful, this is brilliant stuff. Paul is very careful to guard his doctrine of salvation and says that you may be a new lamp just as you are in fact unleavened. He did not say, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lamp and stop there. He did not stop there and there's a reason. Paul would have them to know that they were not being clean before God because they stopped doing what they were doing. They were not clean before God because of, of them having stopped doing the crazy things that they were doing. There's an imperative and indicative at play here. By indicative we mean the things that God accomplished in Christ. Or what Christ accomplished, what the Holy Spirit does. Everything that God does for the believer, in the believer, is the indicative. God alone does that. Then we have the imperative are the commands that come out of the, of the indicative. Okay. So the imperatives are the commands. Robert, you stop your craziness. That's a command. That's an imperative. Why, Robert? Because Christ died for you. Christ died for you is the indicative. That's a reality. It cannot be changed whether you stop your craziness or not. So Apostle Paul is bringing that understanding here and he's saying, You are in fact unleavened. This is the reality of your situation. So align your conduct with your reality. How can they be unleavened? Because To be unleavened means to not have sin and yet be told to clean out the old leaven. (laughs) They don't have sin and yet they have sin. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying you are clean because of Christ, the true unleavened bread the Passover lamb. See that Apostle Paul connected the two feasts together. He connected the unleavened bread and the Passover. Why? Because they speak to the same reality in Christ. Paul is saying, you are unleavened in him, the Passover lamb. You are righteous and accepted in his blood as the Passover lamb. But in the light of that You clean out your foolishness. Clean out the foolishness that is in your conduct and behavior. Let me summarize that. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lamb. Just as you are in fact unleavened. So in fact they are already unleavened because that's what God says about them. But the conduct that is coming because of their spiritual immaturity is not aligning with the reality of who they are. So they are not unleavened in themselves by the fact that they are stopping to do this or stopping to do that or starting to do this. No, Paul says, no, 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 you are already a purchased possession. You already have Christ as the unleavened bread. You are already clean by the word that is spoken. So now align that reality with how you live. That's what Paul is teaching. But yeast was also applied to false doctrine by the Lord. When you're talking about yeast, as I said, we are talking about influence. And the issue is not the quantity of the falsehood, but the fact that it is there. So the idea is maintained that a little bit of bad influence is good enough to defile a whole person. And so the Lord will say in Mark eight fifteen, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And he would say in Matthew 16, actually go to Matthew 16, if, if you have going to open your Bible. Matthew 16, verse 5 to 12. He would say, and the disciples came to the other side of the sea. Matthew 16, 5 to 12. But they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. (laughs) But Jesus, aware of this, said, they were saying this among themselves. Jesus is aware of that in his spirit. He knows exactly what they don't know. (laughs) You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees was a corrupting influence. And as a corrupting influence, when you are making the dough, the yeast is mixed in with the dough. So he is saying the influence is penetrating and is corrupting as leaven is penetrating and influencing the whole lamb. Though seemingly small and insignificant. And we came to all that because Jesus Christ is he who fulfilled and was represented by the feast. And there was much gospel nuggets represented by them. He was the Passover. He, according to John the Baptist, was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is a priest. A lot of people don't know that about John. They think he was just a prophet. He was more than a prophet, Jesus said. John the Baptist was a priest. His father Zechariah was a priest. So the priesthood ran in bloodlines. So he knows something about lambs. Why? John is the law that is pointing God's people to Christ. And saying, the true sacrifice that removes the sin of the world has come. But why the sins of the world, not the sin of the world? Because John should have said, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Why the sin, not the sins? Because the sins of the world are all in the sin of Adam. I'm going to be working a lot of understanding because it helps us to understand Jesus saying the hour has come. Romans 5, 12-17. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justifications. In justification. For if by the transgression of the one Death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? It was by the one transgression, by the one man, Adam, that sin entered into the world. Death into the world and so condemnation came to all men because of that one sin. death, and condemnation, they ended through the transgression of Adam, the one man. And all men were constituted to have done all those things in the one man. And it was by this Lamb of God, this second Adam, Jesus Christ, that sin, death, and condemnation are taken away from the world. See the one-to-one mapping. That is happening. The transaction and judgment of condemnation happened in the two Adams. The first Adam was condemned to die. And all who were in him were reckoned to have sinned, died and condemned in him. That is where the judgment of who you are before God happened. As far as You being in the first Adam. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, the second or the last Adam, Jesus Christ was condemned to die for those who were in him, only those who were in him, that he may lift the condemnation that was brought on his people by the first Adam. And this is not understood by many people in the church because they think they only were condemned condemned when they committed adultery. They think they were condemned when they stole something. What they don't know is that by virtue of being in the first Adam, they have already sinned, they already died, and they are condemned. And if we have to understand God's way of salvation, we have to look at his dealings with the two Adams. If you have to understand anything about salvation, you work with the two Adams. To put yourself in there. Because as soon as you think it's about you, you miss it. And then we ask ourselves if we have transitioned from the first Adam to the second Adam. And we know that we have transitioned from the first to the second by the fact that we believe in the second. That's all. That's all. There is it. <laughs> Why? To remain in the first Adam is to remain under sin, death, and condemnation. But to be in the second Adam, to believe in the second Adam is to believe that you have moved away from all the things that were in the first Adam. And so Jesus would say in John 5, you have passed from death unto life. And it's only in the second Adam that that transaction happens. And so the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. To be glorified on this tree of shame. Condemnation and salvation came because of things that happened on two trees. It's very purposeful. Sin, death and condemnation came by the eating of the fruit that was in the Garden of Eden. And that fruit was hanging on a tree. And so the curse of death and condemnation could only be removed by the eating of another fruit that was hanging on another tree, the cross. And so Jesus would come and say, John 6, You have to go to John 6, John 6, 50 to 58. John says, or Jesus says, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. (laughs) Do you see that Jesus has the garden in his thinking? That when you eat of this Bread from heaven, you don't die, unlike what happened to Adam and Eve when they ate in the garden. Verse 51 I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They are stumbling at the gospel. Because the Jews know from the law that they're not supposed to eat blood. They're thinking, what's wrong with this man? <laughs> Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. See something insignificant there. Every time that Jesus is connecting his death, he always uses the title of Son of Man. Son of Man. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Why? Because they are still in Adam. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 57 and 58, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. The fathers of Israel ate the manna and they died. But even Adam also is a father. He ate and he died. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ is the fruit that was hung on the tree of Calvary that those who eat it by faith will live to eternal life. The body of our Lord was also pictured in the manner the bread that was given to the children of Israel who were in the wilderness, who were dying of hunger because of sin. And so the Lord Jesus is he who fulfills all that by coming into our wilderness, into the wilderness of this world, into this wilderness of sin, that he may take away the sin. But he is the living bread. Why? Because dead bread will not give you life. (laughs) Okay? If something is dead, then it remains dead. You get life from that which is living. You can't jumpstart a car with a dead battery. You need a battery that has power to jumpstart a dead battery. Right? (laughs) We know all that. But for some reason, sinners think, Or I came to Christ by myself. No, he did not. He did not. But the eating of the body of Christ and the drinking of his blood is not talking about eating the elements of communion or the Lord's table. That's not what Jesus is talking about in this chapter. It is talking to believing in the sufficiency of his broken body and his blood for your justification. To take away your sin to Make a complete reversal of what Adam brought upon you by his disobedience. That's what Jesus is talking about. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not come on earth as God's plan B or C or as a contingent plan as one of the many exits from a building that is caught on fire. Jesus is not one of 15 exits of salvation. He is not. And I know that Raphaels the feathers of many people. Jesus cannot be the only way. What about the other people? What about you? you think thinking about other people? <laughs> Unfortunately, that is how the gospel is being presented. And that is how many have believed and understood things to be. But that is not true. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this hour not because it was appointed in the face. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this hour not because it was appointed in the feast. No. The hour was appointed in the feast because it was appointed from eternity. The feast and any such pictures, types and shadows were only preparing for his arrival. They set the stage. They prepared the table. They laid the red carpet. For the revelation of the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. Verses 8 to 12. And we're going to camp and expound on those all the way. And tie them to John 12. Apostle Paul writes and says, verse 8 to 12. I'm just going to go verse by verse and connect the understanding that we want to get from it. Verse 8. And to me... Who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the understanding that Paul had, Apostle Paul, was that he was commissioned to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So what that means is to preach the gospel is to preach or oh, declare the unsearchable riches of Christ it is to preach the story of Christ and Paul says the riches of Christ are unsearchable one can't google them God would have us to know of the excellence of the glory the honor, the majesty, the power, the might the wisdom, the blessing, the righteousness the grace, the love of Christ you name it God would have us to know that. And all that is revealed in the gospel. Listen to verse 9 of Ephesians 3. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So the preaching of the gospel, the revelation of the gospel is to the end that all men may see What is the fellowship or the administration of the mystery of Christ? That's a lot of words. A mystery does not mean something that cannot be understood. It's not some complicated math problem. It means something that existed but is only known and understood by those who have been initiated into it revealed to those who belong to the secret organization. Actually, that's what it means. It's almost cultish. That's the understanding. Unless you become part of the cult, you won't know what they actually believe. So you have to be initiated into that organization. So that's what Paul is saying, that the mystery of the gospel was always there, but was not known until it was revealed to those who were called and initiated into it. So Christianity is the most secretive organization there is. I'm telling the truth. It is the most secretive organization there is. Many people come and read the Bible and get nothing. And this is what Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 and 27. And Jesus was actually praising God for hiding these things. Jesus said, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden, These things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Do you see the mystery? It was hidden. But look at the kind of people that it is being revealed to. So it's not about them being smart. Actually, it is the wise and the prudent who don't get it. It is the simple-minded who actually get it. Why? Because it doesn't come because of your level of understanding. It comes because of the one who reveals it to you. Yes, Father. For this way was well pleasing in your sight. So you see, God is being glorified by the words of his son for just hiding the mystery of Christ. Which is the same language that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 3. And Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. Nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. So do you see? That is how the mystery works. That's what Paul is saying. Christ is he who has to come and reveal things to us by his spirit. So the Lord Jesus Christ praised the Father for keeping others out of the secrets of the Son. There's no one who knows the mystery and secrets of Christ by free will. It is the biggest lie invented by men and unfortunately is in the church One has to be born again to be let in to the mystery of Christ. That is the biblical teaching. To be born again is God giving you the password that enables you to understand the mystery of Christ. Otherwise, it will remain incomprehensible. You will not understand it. And Belshazzar learned things the hard way in Daniel 5. Let's go there. Daniel 5, Belshazzar, the son of King Nebuchadnezzar, they were throwing a party. This concubine, they're just kicking it and having a lot of fun, not even worrying about a thing. Life is so good. And they are throwing their party. They are using the vessels that they took from the temple of God from Israel, from Jerusalem. And they decide to throw a party with these boys and girls. And they go for those vessels and they start drinking wine and stuff and just kicking it. Daniel five three five, Daniel five three four. Sorry. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Just kicking it. Just life is good. <laughs> Now listen to this, Daniel 5, verse 8 to 9. Then a handwriting came, and God came to talk to them. Then all the king's wise men came in. This was after a hand had come and written on the wall. And they were wondering, okay, what's going on? They have to know what's going on because they've never seen this ever. So the king is perplexed. He has to know what's going on. So this is what he decides to do. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. They could not read what was written on the wall. But they heard of Daniel that he was wise. So they called on Daniel, and he came to interpret what was written. Listen to Daniel 5 verse 14. Now I have heard about you that the spirit of the gods is in you, And that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. So these are the things that are found in Daniel because of the spirit of the gods. They don't know what they're talking about. They are pagans, so they think Daniel has some other god that is just a wise god among other gods. No, the spirit that is in Daniel is the spirit of God, is the spirit of Christ. It is that spirit of God that has illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom. And Daniel, by the way, is talking of Christ. This is Christ who is being talked about. Without the Spirit of God, we cannot comprehend spiritual things. We continue to be in the company of Belshazzar and his group. <laughs> okay? Apostle Paul says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually descend. So the handwriting that was on the wall could only be spiritually discerned by one who had the Spirit of God. And so is the gospel. It can not be understood. It can not be discerned by one who does not. They were seeing the handwriting, but they could not make up what was being said. Okay. So in Daniel 5, 25 to 28, we hear this. This is Daniel giving interpretation of the handwriting. And this is the inscription that was written, Mene, mene, tekel, sin." And this is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom king and finished it. He has brought it to, the, to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You have been found deficient. You have no righteousness king. <laughs> Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and patience. Who could read such but the Spirit of God? So, This is a picture of the gospel. The gospel sounds like many men take over sin to the majority of the world. They don't know what it means until the Holy Spirit comes and tells them about the unsearchable riches of Christ that are in those words. So the unsearchable, unknowable riches of Christ have been revealed to some like Daniel by God and some like you and If you are one of them, this should make it very easy to go on your knees and say, Thank you, Jesus, for opening the secrets of the kingdom to someone like me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is only understood by those who have been initiated into its mystery. And this mystery was from the beginning of the word hid in God, which means it is God alone who understood what he was to accomplish. It is God alone who knew his decrees. There was nothing that he did not know about anything that happened or did not happen in this universe. It is God alone who knew what he meant by the devil rebelling. It was all by God's decree. It is he alone who knew what it meant when Adam and Eve sinned. He knew exactly what that meant. He knew the mystery behind it. There's a mystery behind sin that a lot of people don't understand. They just take sin for sin. They don't understand the mystery of the gospel behind sin. And Job would say to all those who speak foolishness about sin, why do you content with him? Why do you content with God? For he does not give any accounting of any of his words. God does not give anyone any explanation. He told job, "Who are you man? Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Or job, get up yourself and, and, and talk to me like a man. Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Or do you know when the mountain gods give birth? Well, tell me, do baby lions tell you when they are hungry? And the answer is, they tell me <laughs> they talk to me. I know when they're hungry, and I hear them when they tell me that they're hungry. And so when you see a gazelle or a buffalo coming down, it's an answer to prayer. <laughs> Listen to First Peter 1, 10-12. Peter says, as to this salvation, as to this salvation, as to the mystery of this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets of old, they made careful searches, seeking to know what person, seeking to know who is this Jesus, (laughs) and the time that he would come as was being predicted by the Spirit of Christ who was in them. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look the holy spirit is from heaven the mystery of the gospel is from heaven the angels are in heaven and they don't get it they also are searching to understand what is this all about so the prophets made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know these things, but to no avail. And the Lord Jesus Christ would come and say in Matthew 13, 17, For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. But not only the prophets, but the angels too. Why? Because the gospel can only be known and received by divine revelation to only those who should know it, need to know basis. So free will gospel is a racket of a gospel, which is no gospel, because it denies the sovereign aspect of revelation, that when you and I came to Christ, it came not because we decided, we came because he came. (laughs) He came and he opened and said, oh, by the way, this is the mystery of salvation. It did not come because we invited, we made a choice. No, that's not how revelation comes. We did not invite Christ to give revelation. It is he who comes as he wills. This is by his sovereign will and power. Let's continue Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul continues and says to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And that was the New King James. I like the New American Standard on this one because I understand it better. The New American Standard says in Ephesians 3:10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The revelation of the mystery of Christ through the salvation of the church was so that God would display. His unsearchable riches in Christ to all men, but not only that, to the principalities, rulers, and authorities in the heavenly places. Not only that, that he would display his manifold wisdom. Manifold comes from the Greek word that means variegated, or of different or diverse colors. Variegated or different or diverse colors. Sister Jenny, a manifold wisdom of God. Manifold comes from the Greek word that means of many colors. Of different colors. You have seen flowers that have different colors on the same leaf. And we call those variegated leaves. Or you have clothes with different colors with a tapestry of colors. Variegated colors. So manifold means mugged with a great variety of colors. So the wisdom of God is mugged with a great variety of colors. It cannot be understood such that Paul would come and marvel at that wisdom and say in Romans eleven thirty three to 36, all the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. What is Paul doing? Paul is marveling at the many colors of the wisdom of God. It is past finding out. A freewheeler cannot marvel at the wisdom of God because God's wisdom is displayed in how he determines salvation. A freewheeler marvels at the manifold wisdom of their own free will to determine something about their own salvation, which things only God does. They are giving to themselves the power and the right and the ability which they don't have which God only possesses to do. And so they can't praise God for sovereign election because election is according to the manifold wisdom of God. Election according to grace. Free justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ is only by the manifold wisdom of God. The fall of Adam is only by the manifold wisdom of God. And so they have to beat their own chest like The Pharisee did in the temple and say, God, I thank you. I am not like other men. I invited, I chose, I decided, I met Jesus, Lord and Savior. That is denying the manifold wisdom of Christ. So the wisdom of God was made known, was manifested, was put on display through the church. If you want to know how wise God is, look at the church. Look at how God saves sinners and calls Ginny righteous and holy, and yet Ginny is stumbling with sin back and forth every day. And yet God says, Oh, by the way, she's righteous. Why how like, do that? How do you do that? That's the wisdom of God. <laughs> and she has eternal life in spite of herself. Why? Because that's how the manifold wisdom of God is working. So the church exists for God to brag about his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and that is in the angelic realm. They also have to see how glorious God is. The mystery of Christ is so great and cannot be contained in any book or the mind of a creature. It's impossible. Everything in creation preaches about Christ. It preaches the mystery of Christ. Every single thing that is in the universe only has one purpose, to preach Christ. There's nothing else. It is there, as far as God is concerned, is there to preach the gospel and nothing else. The mystery of Christ can only be contained in its fullness in the mind of God. So, we should not think we are anything because we can quote a few verses or we know how to spell the name of Jesus. <laughs> See what is being said. I love this teaching and I pray that the Lord is going to bless you. God is saying the church, the purchased and redeemed, ransomed body of Christ, has huge cosmic implications. The influence of the church is beyond the White House, the influence of the church is beyond what is happening in this world. It is cosmic implications. The angelic hordes thought they knew something about God. They thought they were the end of all creation because it took a while before God created man. God created angels way before we showed up. So they thought they were the end of God's creation. They thought they were the apple of God's eye, but they did not know the glory of Christ was not to be put on display in them but in his church. The glory of Christ was not going to be displayed in the angels but in the church. Hebrews 2.16, the writer of Hebrews says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. So the work of Christ, the appearance of Christ was always to the end of displaying his glory in the body, in the church, you and I. And that is why Paul would then come and say we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Why? Because they are offended that God put his affection on some lowly people who were supposed to be of lower rank than them. So it was amazing to them to discover that the one who is God is taking a nature that was below them. They're like, what is this? Is the manifold wisdom of God. But because Christ was united to us, Christ was united and is united to us by his body. When God comes and he takes your nature, he becomes united to those of that nature. So he came and united himself to us who are men. Okay. So we have been united to Christ. So we are now of higher rank than the angels. Because we are united to one who is above them. And that is why Apostle Paul would say, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Why? How? Because we are united to one who is above them. Christ Jesus. Okay, And that's the manifold wisdom of God. But being united to Christ does not make us little gods. We do not become deity by being united to Christ. That's false. It just means that we have been conformed to the image of Christ in holiness and in righteousness. Okay, And because of that union with Christ, God has given us the right and the privilege and the power to make judgment. Verse 11 of Ephesians 3. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the manifold wisdom of God is according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. As far as I'm concerned, this is one of the most important statements that God has put in the whole Bible. That statement and Romans 11 verse 36 Of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. These two statements, when they are understood, you can understand a whole lot of things. And unfortunately, these statements are not understood in the church. But this is what Paul is saying. Because if we understood the eternal purpose of God in Christ, we are going to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, for this purpose I came. Because that's where we are going. We want to understand what that means. All that God determined to do was eternal, which means it has its origins from eternity with respect to time is eternal. You can't go on Google to find a calendar that is called eternity. You can go and Google a calendar 2000 years ago, Google with all the computation that we have now. You can pretty much produce a calendar as far back as you can go, but never a calendar on eternity. Why? Because that calendar does not exist. Eternity means all that which comes from the mind of God. That's what eternity means. It's all that which springs from the mind of God. All that is according to his sovereign will and purpose. Him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So eternity means God doing all things from his mind by himself without your contribution or opinion. When you see eternity, it means does not have you to help. There was no one to run opinion polls when God was determining things. And what that means is in eternity, God was rigging all things in his favor because he was the one writing the script. And when you are the one who is writing the script, you have to rig all things In your favor. (laughs) So because of that, eternity does not keep its fingers crossed, hoping that God's purpose will come to pass if Brother Robert decides to do something. It does not work like that. Making a choice for Christ, deciding, inviting Jesus. No, you're not going to get done with this. Making a choice, deciding, inviting Jesus are the most arrogant words devised in the church. Because the church is the one that's supposed to know the manifold wisdom of God, of God's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. These words are boastful because they make God's eternal purpose to be purposed in man and not in Christ. Do you see that? Because God is very purposeful to say his eternal purpose was purposed in Christ Jesus. And see that God does not have purposes. God has only one purpose, it's singular, it's in Christ Jesus. And God does not have a plan. God does not have a plan, he has a purpose. And his purpose is in Christ Jesus. People who claim to know Christ have to repent from such foolish talk of inviting Jesus. We are not honoring God with that trash talk. The mystery of the church the mystery of the church was an eternal decree of God. It was a sovereign and free decree, which means God was not influenced by any particular campaign. There were no ads or advertisements that were put to sway God one way or the other. There were no charge of the Russians interfering with anything. There was no charge. I'm serious. But that's that's how men think about God. It doesn't work like that. What God determined to do in eternity, in his own mind, is what he is doing now in time. God is not a chicken or a crocodile that lays eggs and hopes that they will all hatch and the gender between the male and female crocodiles will hopefully balance out. You know how crocodiles determine gender, right? Crocodiles, they bury their eggs in the soil and the gender is determined by temperature. So if it wants to have a particular gender, it gives it more heat or it, it doesn't give it much heat. That's what determines gender. Okay. It's about temperature. <laughs> and men think that that's how God works. No, 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 no. It doesn't work. Even when the crocodile does that, it's all rigged by God. <laughs> God is he who determines what male and female crocodiles are going to be. So all things were put in Christ, all creation in Christ brought to reality by his speaking held together by the word of his power the revelation of god is in christ all of it jesus said if you have seen me you have seen the father all things exist because of god's eternal purpose in christ why jesus because god loves jesus and he wanted in that eternal purpose to display his glory and power by creating things and have them behold the glory of the sun and say, wow, 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 wow. Because wow is one word that will always say in heaven. Wow. All languages are going to be done away with all with but wow is going to be in heaven. Wow, 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 wow. Isaiah had to put the E because he found himself to be a sinner, but he said, Whoa, whoa, is me. <laughs> but the redeemed are going to say, Wow, wow, Jesus, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> creation is not adding anything to Christ, creation is not adding anything to Jesus. Rather, creation is in God. I want you to really be able to think about these matters. Creation is contained in Christ Jesus. It derives its form, its substance, its being, its life in him. In him, all things consist. And that is why in Acts 17, 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Right? For we are also his offspring. So, with that understanding... Adam had to fall according to the eternal purpose of God in Christ. Adam did not fall and Christ became plan B to undo what Adam did. Because then God does not have an eternal purpose. He now has to always be on the lookout for what else Robert may do today. Oh, I didn't realize he was that bad. What am I going to do then? I have to call Becca. Becca, I need to talk to Robert because he's getting out of control. No, it doesn't work like that. Sin, death and condemnation had to happen according to the eternal purpose of God in Christ. Salvation and judgment are according to the eternal purpose of God in Christ that the son may be honored as the father is honored. Those are the words of Jesus. Election And reprobation are according to the eternal purpose of God in Christ. For known to God from eternity are all his works. Known to God from eternity are all his works. And all creation are the works of his hands. And people begin to get in trouble when they start to arrange things for God. And say, well, he does this, but he doesn't do that. Or he does this, but because I don't think God can do that. When you start to think like that, you don't know what you're talking about. When you begin to defend God, you don't know what you're talking about. If anyone knows anything about who God is, their proper response is that of Eli who said, It is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his own sight. And this was the news that God was going to kill his two sons. If God did not desire sin in his eternal purpose, then sin would not exist. Let us tell the truth. If God did not desire any fallen angels and humans, there would be no fallen angels and there would be no sinful human beings. For he has existed in eternity without us. If God desired to have only holy angels and only holy men without sin ever showing up, then heaven would have been populated with such without the need of the cross. Because the holy angels are not in heaven because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. The holy angels are not in heaven because Jesus died for them. We are yet to hear that testimony. They are there because they did not sin. But they did not sin because they were intrinsically righteous. They did not sin because God kept them from falling. And so he could have kept Adam from falling if that was his eternal purpose. But God could not be known to you and I without displaying his glory outside the context of sin, outside the context of death, outside the context of salvation and judgment. Sin, death, salvation and judgment are the big screen, high definition screen. On which God displays his glory. If you have to display something beautiful. You need a dark background. The darker the background. The higher the definition of what you are casting on the background. So you would not know the glory of God. The majesty power of God in salvation. Unless you experience sin, death and condemnation. You would not come and praise Jesus. For everything that we know him to be and everything that we shall know him to be outside sin, death, and condemnation. If we deny that fact, we don't know what we are talking about, period. And so to that, Jesus knows about all these things. And so he comes and he prays in John twelve twenty-three, And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified how? By being buried like a grain of wheat. So the death of Christ was for his glory. Christ cast glory in terms of death. Now, if Stan were to say, the hour has come for Stan to be glorified. How Stan, I am going to be buried like wheat. I'm like, um, I think we need to go to the hospital. We have some issues here. But why die Jesus because of sin imputed to him? Sin that came how? Sin that came through Adam. Why die Jesus? Because of death. Death that came how? That came through Adam. Why die Jesus? Because of condemnation. Where did the condemnation come from? Because of Adam. So the sin and death of Adam. Was so that the second Adam. Would also die. In the removal Of the sins of others. Remember Adam was a type. Of the one who was to come. So if we have to understand. God's eternal purpose. We have to understand Adam. In the light of Christ. In Christ dying. He shows that he has life in himself. He has this commandment from the father. John 10 17 18. For this reason. The father loves me. Why Jesus? Why does the father love you? Because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. Why is Jesus putting all these things in the context of death? Because He has Adam and what Adam brought on his people in mind. Verse 18, "No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my Father. And my friends, this was God's purpose in Christ. Christ is coming to die as the surety of his people. He is dying on behalf of his people to take away sin, death, and condemnation from them. Which things could not be removed by anyone in the created universe. Sin, death, and condemnation could not be removed even by the best of angels. So Christ came to do that which we could not do for ourselves so that we may marvel. That we may be amazed at the glory of Christ. And to sing forever about the glory of his glorious grace. Remember Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glorious grace. <laughs> now this is beautiful stuff. Listen to this also. We are almost getting close to. Yeah, we are actually very close. Very good. You are doing good. <laughs> I love this stuff. This is The reason why I continue doing it, because when I like things that are that are connected, what you see in a lot of the teaching in the church is they are quick to create boundaries for you to understand what's going on. And you know that the explanation that is being given for some reason is not adequate. Once you inquire a little bit more, then they put barriers for you and say, oh, if you think like that, you're going to make God the author of sin. So what? But when they do that, they are hoarding you from understanding the mystery of God in Christ. They are hoarding you from understanding the eternal purpose of God in Christ. Because if these things exist, guess what? They exist because God caused them to exist. I'm telling the truth. Otherwise they will not exist. Listen to what Jesus says in First John sorry, that's what John says in First John three eight. And then we'll connect that with John twelve thirty one. And then we'll go to Genesis. <laughs> First John three eight. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. John 12.31 Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of the world, Satan, the devil, was cast out by the death of Christ. Or I thought if you were to cast out someone, you get some rocket launchers, you you get some aircraft carriers, and you go shoot them down. How do you cast out someone by being hung on the cross? But that is the way of the foolishness of God and the manifold wisdom of God. (laughs) Genesis 3, 14, 16. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I love it. Genesis 3, 14, 16. Moses says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you go and dust you eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and his seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So why mention the devil in the context of his own death? The Lord Jesus Christ is he who is the seed of the woman who now goes into the boxing ring with the devil according to Genesis three fourteen to 16. The devil has to be cast out He has to be bruised on the head. Complete defeat. And that is Goliath being beheaded by David in a picture. Goliath is a representation of sin, death, and condemnation, and the devil. They are all in one. And so the decapitation, the removing of Goliath's head is Christ taking down the devil. Jesus is he who is the woman also whose pain shall be greatly multiplied in childbirth. In pain on the cross, he will bring forth children to God and that is why his soul is troubled. He is in great labor pains because for these purpose he came and the hour of his glorification has come. That is what is happening. This Jesus who has been raised on the cross Who is about to be raised on the cross, buried like a grain of wheat, raised from the ground to be on the right hand of God? This one is he whom God appointed for our salvation. And we have boldness and access into the presence of God because of him. And that boldness and access comes by the faith of him, and that means by his righteousness. And his obedience. And knowing all that Jesus has come to this hour. Because for this purpose he came. He came to die. He did not come to make salvation possible. He did not come to make our life easy. He did not. He came to give us access to God. He came that we may be justified. He came that he may remove all that was on us because of Adam. And Galatians 4 Verse 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So to be redeemed from the law is to be redeemed from the curse of the law. Why? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And if we are talking about curses, we are talking about Genesis chapter 3. The curse that was put on the woman continues all the way, and Christ is he who has to remove it. And in John 9.39, Jesus says to the Jews, to the Pharisees, for judgment I came into this word, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So what is the conclusion of the matter? For this purpose, I came to the world to glorify the name of the Father. The question that we have to ask then in the light of that is, did Jesus accomplish the mission on which the Father sent him? Our answer is going to be yes or no. And if our answer is no, then Jesus was a failure and there's no gospel. But if our answer is yes, then we have such a wonderful gospel. Because if Jesus was accepted by the Father, then you have nothing to do to be accepted by him. There's nothing left for you to do. Your stumblings are the very reason why He came. (laughs) Your very stumblings, your sin that you deal with every day and you're thinking, I wish I was just better. I wish I was, my mind was cleaner than what it thinks. I wish I could do better things is the very reason why he came, and he knew that you think exactly the way that you think. So the conclusion of the matter is in Hebrews one, verse one to four. The writer of Hebrews says, "God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, and this Son." And he is the radiance of his glory. And the exact representation of his nature. He is the express image of God. Express. One to one. They map 100% one to one. And not only that. The son upholds all things by the word of his power. So what did he do? So this is the qualification of Christ. When he had made purification of sins. When he had finished the purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had made purification, when he finished, Christ actually finished purification of sins. He finished it. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So if Christ came to this hour and for this purpose, to make an end to the purification of sins, then he saved his people completely. He finished the purification of sins. He sat down, which means he finished salvation because this is the language of priesthood. Priests in the tabernacle did not sit down. Why? Because they had to continue to make sacrifices. But Christ sat down. You only sit down when you have finished your work. So he finished his work. So the gospel is a declaration of the truth and reality that Christ Finished the purification of our sins. He made the ransom payment in full for our redemption. There's no doubt about that. Otherwise, he would not have risen from the dead. And I pray I'm one of those for whom Christ died. And I pray that you're one of those for whom Christ died because things are going to come apart. Between now and death, a lot of things are going to go bad. A lot of things. You are more vulnerable than you think. We are so vulnerable in a way that we can't imagine. We are vulnerable in our relationships, in our marriages. We are vulnerable even as a people, as a country. We are vulnerable. A lot of wrong, bad things will happen. And you have to have something that can not be taken away from you. And there's only one thing that can not be taken away. And that is Christ and him finishing the purification of sins. You have to have something that is finished. Every day, every weekend, we are busy vacuuming and cleaning and doing laundry and eating and, and just keep doing things. And I'm thinking, I need something that is finished. I pray when he came, his purpose was to accomplish your salvation by his death. And what a wonderful testimony that he gave to us that it is finished. It is finished. <laughs> Brother Robert, why are you saved? Because Christ said, it's finished. Why do you think you have life? Why do you think you have hope? Why do you think it's good between you and God? Because Jesus said, it's finished. That's the only reason you have hope. Beyond that, there's no hope. And that testimony is our interest in religion. If that is not our interest in religion, then we are believing in a false religion. And if we think men can get themselves in and out of God's eternal purpose by their choice, then we are not talking about the same Jesus. You can't get in and out of God's eternal purpose. Because the eternal purpose of God is what drives all things. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. The name of Christ was glorified. Because the name of the Father is also the name of Christ. Because it is the name that the Father gave to Christ. He said, your name that you gave me. The name that you gave me. You glorify that name because it's your name. Glorify that name. I'm just going to read it. And we'll finish off from John 17. I think I'm going to begin next week with that. To develop it some more. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me. <laughs> John 17, 6-12. Jesus, in the high priestly prayer, says, I have manifested your name to the man whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and you have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, But of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things are mine, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished by the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So what was the name to be glorified? It is the name of Jesus. That is the name of the Father that the Father gave to him. How? By his death. Jesus is the name of God, and that is why Apostle Paul, who say every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I've both glorified it and I'll glorify it again. And that was the voice of the Father to the Son saying, I have glorified your name and I'll glorify it again. And my friends, salvation is about glorifying the name of God that is Christ Jesus. Jesus did not come to set up soup kitchens, but to be glorified in the salvation of his people. And we may play ignorance but that name has been glorified already in an accomplished redemption. That name is glorified in your finished salvation. And it is glorified in keeping you. Is glorified in you being presented holy and blameless before him. It's all about that name. It's the name that keeps you all the way. Once you are in the name of Christ, you are in a tunnel that goes all the way to glory. You can't come out. God's purpose is in Christ. God's purpose is eternal and that means it cannot be frustrated by you by anything that is created. It can't be frustrated by your sin or the sins of others. Praise the Lord. I'm done. I'm done. Uh, We're going to do part two two after we're done eating lunch. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for the name of Christ. We thank you for His glorification On the cross, we thank you for that hour that came because through that hour, the works of the devil were destroyed. Through that hour, the sin, death, and condemnation that was on us because of Adam was removed because of that hour. So, Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness that is showed and the wisdom in which you have accomplished our salvation. And, Lord, may you cause us to glory in that finished work of Christ. And not to have any other hope outside what he has accomplished for us. Lord, we thank you for all those who shall hear. May you also grant them ears to hear. May Christ be glorified ever by his people in spite of their weaknesses. Because salvation is not in their weaknesses and salvation is not in their strength. But in that he came to the hour and he finished the work that was appointed for him for that hour. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.